This week's episode is brought to you by Cabrita Goat's Milk Formula. If your formula-fed baby experiences eczema, reflux, constipation, or other tummy troubles, you might have to try a new formula. For some babies, cow's milk formula is too tough on their sensitive digestive systems, and that shows up in all kinds of uncomfortable symptoms. But goat's milk proteins are gentler on the tummy and digest more quickly and similarly to breast milk. Cabrita is a naturally easy to digest formula that starts with general goat milk, and it just might be the perfect solution for your formula-fed baby. Right now, they're offering Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics listeners a free tin of Cabrita Goat's Milk Formula. Just email them at hello at cabrita.ca. That's hello at k-a-b-r-i-t-a dot c-a. Tell them you heard about them on Common Sense, give them your address, and they'll send you the formula to, tr- to try. Offer valid for U.S. residents only. Go check them out at cabritausa.com. Hi, everybody. This is Jeannie Faulkner, and you're listening to Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics, where we have smart conversations about all that and then some. I'm the author of Common Sense Pregnancy, the book. That's where the big, this big, long conversation of ours started. So go pick up a copy wherever books are sold. Over here on the podcast, we do talk about pregnancy, parenting, politics, feminism, healthcare, current events, and a whole lot more. And we're so lucky to have two guests on the podcast today who have a whole lot to tell us about things going on in the news. Before that, though, let's do a just a little recap of what's been happening. So last week, Sarah Bonds from Circle of Health International came on the podcast to talk about what's going on at the border. And yesterday, she sent me a plea for volunteers. They need Spanish fluent clinical volunteers for three to four week stretches to provide services at respite centers along the border. To find out exactly what they need and to volunteer, email volunteer at C-O-H-I-N-T-L dot org and tell them you heard about Circle of Health International on Common Sense. What else is going on? Oh, so much. And this week's guests are going to explain it all to us. First off, we get to talk with Avital Norman Nathman, who is contributing editor and writer at Grok Nation, an online community for people of all ages and backgrounds to dive deep into conversations on contemporary issues. Founded by actress, neuroscientist, and mom, Mayim Bialik, Avital is also the author of a book I reference a lot here on the pod, The Good Mother Myth. Today, Avatar is going to tell us about the breastfeeding resolution that's been all over the news. So let's get Avatar on the phone. Hi, Avatar. It's so, so good to talk to you again. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah. So we had you here on the podcast back, way back at the beginning on episode eight. That was a couple of years ago, and it was January of, of 2016. And wow. I know we talked about... The book, The Good Mother Myth, which I talk mm-hmm. about fairly often and about feminism and about motherhood. So I'm, I'm real glad to have you back. And I asked you on the podcast today um, because, you know, you're a contributing writer to Grok Nation and you wrote a really, really exceptionally clear explanation about what the hell the U.S. has done now in terms of the World Health Organization breastfeeding resolution. So... 
Tell yeah. me all about it. Avital, tell me all about it. Right. So what happened was over the weekend, I'd gotten this alert um, talking about this international breastfeeding resolution, um, which actually took place back in the spring, but we're just hearing about it now because of this New York Times report that came out um, that's talking about what specifically went hap- uh, what specifically went down during uh, this assembly. So the piece came out. I, I read it. Um, I immediately sent it to um, my boss and friend, Maya Bialik, who uh, founded Grok Nation, because she and I have, you know, have similar passions, similar interests, and I knew she would have thoughts and feelings. And she, of course, did and posted it to her Facebook page um, and got a lot of responses. And as I read through them, I saw a lot of people didn't quite understand what the resolution was, what the U.S.'s role was in it, why the U.S. was opposed to it. And so we talked about having just kind of a basic 101 because breastfeeding and formula feeding in general in the U.S. and globally, people have really passionate, um, really intense thoughts and feelings on, right, because it's about feeding our children. And so there's a lot of emotion um, wrapped around these issues. And so a lot of people were talking without really knowing what was happening. And it was very, like, you know, we wanted to get the um, basis covered. And so should I give you the 101? Yes, please. That's the setup for it. Yes, please. (laughs) So here's the 101. Um, So this happened actually back um, in the spring in Geneva. There was a World Health Organization assembly where they were reviewing this international breastfeeding resolution. And it was a pretty simple, pretty um, straightforward resolution that they wanted to make breastfeeding as accessible um, and as supported as possible for mothers who choose to breastfeed. This wasn't an anti-formula resolution. This Nothing in this resolution would make form- getting formula more difficult, right? There was no restrictions passed on accessing formula or increasing the price, nothing like that. So it had nothing to do with making formula more difficult. Um, it just simply recognized the fact that there's an industry um, behind formula and the baby food market, um, and there's no industry behind breastfeeding, right? Right. Um, and well, so there they wanted is. to stop- There is a, an, a breastfeeding industry, lactation consultants and, you know, all of that and breast Right, but and all I should say, sorry, a, a big business, like yeah. a corporate sponsored, yeah. um, because even in the corporate corporations that have, um, you know, that help with breast pumps or things like that, it's nothing to the degree of the $70 billion a year baby food industry, right? We're talking Correct. like David and Goliath type um, industries. And so- the resolution basically said, let's use all the research that we have out there and let's use it for have the government come in and promote and support breastfeeding mm-hmm. in their countries um, and also educate parents to kind of keep an eye out for, um, to be alert for misleading claims uh, spread by formula man- manufacturers when they market, right? So in advertisements. Um, the World Health Organization has already multiple times talked about the just the concept in general about advertising formula um, as a breastfeeding alternative and their thoughts about that. Um, but this wasn't even specific, specifically about that. It was just like, we know that advertising is going to happen. Just be alert for when they make false claims. Right, right. Because um, some, some formula companies have even gone as far as to say that their product is better than breastfeeding, um, and there's no scientific claims for that, really. So 
And in fact, so they're making in the biggest. And in fact, in some, and in fact, in many countries, especially developing countries, you know, maybe mm-hmm. the formula quality is good enough, but the quality of water that a family might have. Right. Access and so that's to, what I was, yeah. So yeah. Um, that was kind of the, one of the biggest points is that a lot of the places that they're pushing formula, um, there's not access to clean water. So women who may choose to formula feed end up having a lot more difficulty and ends up being a lot more expensive because they're needing to now buy bottled water in addition to the formula, kind Mm -hmm. of doubly impacting. And this is happening in regions um, that are impoverished, regions that um, healthcare access isn't um, as easy as in other areas. So really, this resolution was not supposedly, I mean, everyone had thought it was going to pass. Nobody thought there was going to be much um, issue with it. It seemed pretty straightforward. Uh, and then the U.S. kind of came in strong saying no. Um, and this is where kind of stories, this is where people are having issue with, well, who said what? Um, but what came out of it was that Ecuador said that the U- Ecuador, who was the country that was sponsoring this resolution, mm-hmm. said that the U.S. delegates um, basically threatened them saying that if they continued to support, if Ecuador continued to support this bill or this resolution, sorry, Um, that the U.S. would retaliate in some way. Um, Why? Either by withdrawing aid or by forcefully, you know, stopping business. Because, um, and that's where it gets kind of dicey and questionable, but this was the uh, Ecuadorian delegates, and then the um, WHO also made statements, and um, there was quotes from them saying that something was, there was clearly some arm twisting or, heated negotiations, I guess, are polite ways of saying it. But then um, it was very hard to find another country to step in um, to sponsor this resolution. And many other smaller countries would not, refused. Basically, the feeling was because they were afraid of potentially U.S. retaliation. So what, um, what is the speculation as to the United States motivation? So that's where it gets tricky. There's on the record, the New York Times was unable to find anyone to say to make any sort of connection. Um, but there was a lot of speculation that this has to do with the formula and baby food business, um, and that they would, you know, even though I said that these, this resolution would not in any way um, prevent families from accessing formula or making them pay more for formula, it would make it a little more difficult in some areas for formula companies to advertise as they have been doing. Mm -hmm. And so it could impact their bottom line in that way. Um, And so there's thoughts that the U.S. um, were catering more to this corporate interest rather than um, the health and well-being of mothers and children. Um, And then in a weird twist of events, and this is where I feel like this is such a soap opera, Russia stepped in to sponsor the bill, or the, I keep calling it a bill, I'm sorry, um, the resolution. And so it passed, um, but it's just absolutely stunning that in the end, you know, Russia was the one that said, don't worry, we'll take the heat, we'll do this. And the U.S. Um, comes off looking like thugs. Right. Um, it just, it's a very strange turn of events. I can understand why it gained. It's interesting because, right, resolutions and people are talking and promoting and trying to educate about breastfeeding all the time. Yeah. It doesn't really get much attention. It's not a sexy issue. It's not a hot issue. 
Um, it's a polarizing issue, though. I mean, it's... Oh, for sure, it's a yeah. polarizing issue. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it takes this kind of espionage and intrigue and... All of a sudden. Um, and then people are, are paying attention. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's good. That's good. It's good to have some controversy mm-hmm. and to shine the light on, you know, maybe some continuing behaviors that this administration is promoting that are really um, damaging to women and children. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Avital, what should listeners, what else should listeners know about this and what should they do about it? Um, so I think educate yourselves, right? And I think this is just very similar to any polarizing or any, um, passion fueled issue of uh-huh. our times. Uh-huh. Um, I think that you, you need to find out the facts before you let your emotions fuel the argument, if that makes sense. Um, and a good place to start would... is with your article. So let's make sure that yeah. we, the, the title uh, so and you where can they go find to Grok it. Nation. Yep, go to Grok Nation. It's one of the articles. Just We posted it earlier this week, and so it's right up there. Um, and it really is the basics. I don't go on one side or the other. I don't say this is good or bad. There's, I, I really just say this is exactly what happens, um, and I try to break it down as easy as possible. What's the, um, what's the resolution? What does it do? What does it not do? Mm-hmm. Why the U.S. Um, was against it. And again, that is still speculation. It's unclear, but I kind of provide what the New York Times report offered mm-hmm. as possible reasoning, mm-hmm. um, kind of the actions, and then how it all turned out in the end. And one thing that came of it is that a lot of um, health advocates and organizations really not just were outraged, but were they were really, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I mean, they were really dismayed, not dismayed, but it was kind of, um, the way they spoke out afterwards. Right. Um, it was more than a dismay. They really, you know, I felt like almost as they were like wagging their finger and there's a word that I'm just blanking on, but it really, we got, we got a lot of, um, finger wags from organizations that didn't beat around the bush and said that, you know, it looks like the country's putting profit over people. Yeah. Um, it really looks like that. It really looks like And it's like a bad that. look. If I mean, regardless of whether you're a formula feeder, a breast feeder, you use both. Um, the way the U.S. handled this was inappropriate at, at best. Mm-hmm. Um, and just really makes us look bad in the eyes of the global public. Um, when I, we know that in the U S there are people who work so hard every day to ensure that, you know, infants have access to food, whatever that may be. Um, but right now we don't have a great global look, so yeah, we have to contend with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on and explaining that to us. And I'm going to encourage listeners to go on over to Grok Nation Find Avital Norman Nathman's article right there on the front homepage. Um, you know, read that and then follow the link and read the New York Times article as well. And yeah, and join the conversation. Let us know your thoughts. Um, because some people are saying, you know, maybe it is in our place 
to get involved in these things and let the market ring as it is. It's, you know, it's a very interesting conversation. It really is. Let's keep having it. Well, thank you so much. Avatar, let's have you back on the pod real soon. Sounds great. Thanks, Dean. Okay, bye-bye. I always love talking with Avatar, and we'll have her back on the podcast real soon. So next, we're going to have a nice long conversation with Carol Sakala, Director of Childbirth Connection Programs at the National Partnership for Women and Families, about a new report and a six-point blueprint for addressing the United States' high maternal mortality rate. We'll take a quick break first, and then we'll get Carol on the line. Thanks again to our sponsors at Cabrita Goat's Milk Formula. If your formula-fed baby has tummy or skin troubles associated with cow's milk formula, it might be time to try something different. Check out Cabrita Goat's Milk Formula over at cabritausa.com. Then send them a fast email at hello at cabrita.ca because right now they'll send a free tin to Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics listeners. Just tell them you heard about them here on Common Sense. Give them your address and voila, your free tin is on its way. We're back and ready to chat with Carol, so let's get her on the line. Hey, Carol. How are you? Hi, Jean. Good to hear you. Yeah. So we've had you on the podcast before, and the last time was back in May. Uh, That was episode 120. So welcome back. Really glad to have you here. Good. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah. So for listeners who haven't listened to that episode yet, let me ask you once again, which is always our first question, who are you and what do you do? So my name is Carol Sakala, and I am Director of Childbirth Connection Programs at the National Partnership for Women and Families. We are a nonprofit organization based in Washington, D.C. that really focuses on helping families live with dignity and economic security, and we do that by promoting access to quality, affordable health care, reproductive health and rights, and fair and family-friendly workplaces. Excellent. So you're in Washington, D.C., where right now it is hot and steamy, I bet. It is quite warm today. Yeah, yeah. I get to come to D.C. a lot, frequently, and, you know, I've, I'm always just stunned by how you guys function at such high capacity with so much humidity. It's intense. It's intense. It is. It's a Southern city. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. So um, what we're going to talk about today is a new report that came out uh, just last week that's addressing the United States' extremely high maternal mortality rate. And I wanted you to first kind of Talk about that piece. You know, the U.S. has a, I, you know, I say extremely high, but I say it's extremely high for a developed country. Um, in comparison with some other countries in the world, we're doing okay. But in comparison with many countries, we kind of suck. So I wanted to start there. And I'm wondering if you could just address that real, real quickly. Sure. And Jean, it's not limited to maternal mortality. It's also what we call severe maternal morbidity, affecting a much larger group of women who um, face very serious challenges in the course of their childbearing. And also we have seen um, in the last year where we have data, an uptick in 
preterm birth, low birth weight, and cesarean rate. So and on many different fronts, and I, I should clarify, the maternal mortality isn't only high relative to other countries, but almost every other country is bringing it down, and it's been going up in the United States. So we need for we years. Need, yes, we need for some years. help here. Yeah. We uh, we are continuing to do the same things we've been doing is not going to solve this problem. And this is a very large, vulnerable population impacting everyone in the foundational. developmental period at the beginning of life and 85% of women who give birth one or more times. So it's a really a crucial population health issue and we need to rethink how we're approaching it. So a, a group of maternal health experts got together and they developed a strategy, correct? Or, or I guess it's six strategies for improving the maternal and infant healthcare experience. Yes, that is right. What an amazing group we had to work with. It was a delight. Everybody brought a new vantage point. We kept getting better and better all the time as we as the feedback would roll in on various versions from all the different members. And so we're really proud of this um, consensus document that has six strategies, high-level strategies that really are closely aligned with um, the national, what we call the National Quality Strategy, which is a federal plan for improving our healthcare system. And then we have 22 high-level recommendations that fall within those various strategies. And for each of those are a series of action steps. And it's all very closely tied to things that are happening now. That's things uh, people can do now to make an improvement. And we um, include lots of citations as well for learning more, documenting why we took this, the positions we did, and lending a hand with people who want to take it forward on implementing the recommendations. I, ha- I want to back up just a little bit, and I have two questions. First of all, who had input in creating this report? And secondly, who is the intended audience? Well, that's a great question, Jean. The input was these 17 um, individuals, and most of them are clinical leaders from the uh, professions that you would expect, obstetrics, um, family medicine, midwifery, and nursing. But we also had payment specialists. We also had various kinds of academics, um, a a broad group, uh, consumer advocates, a broad group weighing in with the the, we always have these great experiences with this multi-stakeholder perspective where mm-hmm. we learn from each other and what we produce is so much stronger. Yeah, yeah. You said um, payers. Are you talking about insurance providers? So what I, what I mean by that is payment reform specialists. So I think oh, I what see. one of our strategies talks about um, how we can change the way we pay for care. And in my view, that is the thing that can be most impactful if we get the get it right. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. we have people thinking about um, how to change payment. And I, I could just say a little bit about that, that right now we're fundamentally in our healthcare system, we have a fee-for-service system. And that means that you get paid for what you do 
just by the fact of doing it. It doesn't matter whether it was a good thing to do or whether it had a good impact. And so we need to help people think about doing the right thing and trying to work together to be impactful. And there are some exciting ways to do that right now that people have been uh, piloting. And um, so that's one of our strategies, actually. The first one is innovative payment and delivery systems, because when you uh, change the way we pay for care, you can also open it up to be very innovative in how you organize care, who's who people have access to, what services they have access to. In some of these mo- the models that we ex- especially highlight, you don't even need a billing code, for example, to get the care of a doula. If a doula is considered by the care team to be something that is beneficial and a good use of the resources that are available, they can get that service. And another one is community and social services. Right now we have precious few resources available to help women in their pregnancy care or in their postpartum care when needs arise, uh, you know, food shortage or domestic violence or um, transportation issues or, or mental health issues. We really do not give our prenatal care providers much leeway for uh, making those recommenda- references and referrals and following up on how they're working to community and social services, for example. Yeah. So was this was this report written primarily for policymakers, healthcare providers? Who who was it written? Who's going to read this right. report? So it is. There's many people who um, can. It's written for people who can understand the opportunities for making a difference and moving forward and in exciting ways that we have for changing um, the outcomes that we've been talking about. And this is many different kinds of what we call stakeholders, people with an interest in this. So employers are often at the top of a kind of downstream chain. They're purchasing health care from health plans. So employers can become very proactive in um, the contracts that they make. Health plans can be very, very proactive in their contracts with hospitals and with care providers. And hospitals can be proactive, care providers, the advocacy community, certainly policymakers. Um, and by policymakers, we mean both clinic leaders um, in who have a um, say in policies in the private sector, as well as policies. Um, mostly, it's going to be at the federal level, but um, so in Congress, there are a lot of bills right now um, in response to the publicity that has been taking place about our poor uh, maternal and infant health outcomes. Yeah, there's a so there's a all kinds of people can play a role. Yeah, there's a uh, there's a lot being presented to Congress right now for maternal health, and I think that it's kind of interesting that it's happening at a time when, in other areas of um, women's health. Uh, you know, what we're seeing isn't very supportive. But you know what? That's a side conversation, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Yeah. But I think it is important to note that on the maternal health side, uh, these bills are, there's quite a few bills that are have been filed or are um, being prepared. 
and there are um, bi- there's bipartisan support um, yeah. for them. Yeah. So that's a really exciting uh, development given our contentious political environment that I we've know. been experiencing. It's a it's a little bit of fresh air. I appreciate it, and I and I think that we do a service to our representatives by letting our listeners know that not everything that goes up on goes on up on Capitol Hill is a negative thing right now. There's a lot of good work still being done. So let's let's go over, you know, the six points in a little bit more detail. Um and you know, for li- I know that most of my listeners are probably, you know, either pregnant women or new parents or people who are supporting new parents and they may or may not be people that are involved in, you know, they may not speak the same wonky talk we do. So we're going to keep that in mind. But I also know that my listeners are super, super smart and that they're really actively trying to get an education in how to not only, you know, operate our prenatal care system so that they come out okay, um, but also, you know, how does this impact them as healthcare consumers, you know, once you become a parent, you become the primary healthcare consumer for your family. You become the one who navigates everything from the pediatrician's office to the emergency room. You know, it just, the doors are wide open. So I, I feel like women's healthcare experience during their prenatal years and their outcomes, that's their building blocks for the whole rest of their family's healthcare experience, right? I completely agree with you that many women did not have much sustained contact with the healthcare system until this time in their lives. It's a unique opportunity for a lot of contact to build a relationship, to grow in skills and knowledge about taking responsibility just at a time when you're going to be experiencing the momentous uh, experience of giving birth, becoming a new parent, and having responsibility for care, uh, healthcare across the generations. So right. it's really an outstanding opportunity to um, build uh, strong women who are um, confident in managing their care and the care of their uh, family members. Yeah, yeah. Learning curve is steep, though. You know, a lot of women, the first time that they ever really need any kind of significant healthcare is, you know, during their pregnancy, you know, they've been fine. They've been just fine. And then they come into a healthcare experience that at least in the United States is really slanted in the wrong direction. So, you know, the generation of women who are becoming mothers now have this tremendous opportunity to take the reins, you know? to look at at what their experience is and say, nope, it's time to build a better system. So let's talk, my voice just cracked. Let's talk about the six points. Number one is reward healthcare providers and systems that deliver quality woman-centered maternity care. First thing I want to do is tell me what is woman-centered maternity care. Well, thanks, Jane. And I think that gets to the special focus of this particular document. So if I could back up just a little bit, um, the title title is Blueprint for Advancing High-Value Maternity Care Through Physiologic Childbearing. And that's... um, a, a technical term, some people would call normal birth, natural birth. Those con- concepts are 
um, a little fraught and not the right ones, not comfortable for a lot of people to use. So we just want to talk about um, the importance of limiting interventions that are now widely used to start labor, drive it along, get the baby out, feed the baby, etc., which could and should be used more uh, in a more limited way when truly needed and when beneficial. So what this is about is fostering um, the uh, innate, hormonally driven physiologic processes that do these things, start labor, <laughs> drive it along, etc. And I love I love that description. Start labor, drive <laughs> yes, it along. And I love this it. is about um, our mammalian heritage. Like we before we had this current kind of maternity care system over a very long period of time, um, people gave birth and um, survived and grew up and gave birth again. So um, anyway, that's what this is about. And really, the origin is in a report that we issued several years back that synthesized. Uh, over 1,100 sources to step back and say, what uh, what is happening here in our bodies, and also what are, what is the impact of these common um, interventions that our people experience at this time? And what we found is that the uh, the the healthy perinatal physiologic processes, as we call them, are accomplishing really important work to uh, advance the whole process and also get ready for the next steps. So they help with the fetus being ready to be born and safety in labor and progress in labor. And they help reduce stress and pain and help with a safe maternal and newborn transition at the time of birth and adaptations for breast breastfeeding and secure maternal newborn attachment, etc. So all kinds of uh, things that that are right within our bodies and can be fostered if we are valuing this and paying attention to it. And our understanding is that with um, that kind of care, with bringing that to the fore, we can intervene in what we were discussing earlier, which, which is which is that all too often we have um, we are relying on rescue heroic procedures uh, that we're reading about in these yeah. uh, news yeah. stories to and we can have a move things upstream and have a more of a safety cautious preventive approach that can reduce the need for this in our we're facing terrible disparities and what's coming out is and and it's persistent they're not new what's coming out is that these women have not been getting attentive respectful preventive care so this model has a role there and the the biggest population that can benefit are all the women who are getting this high tech model but do not have a need for it and could potentially be harmed. So the question is, what is the appropriate care for them? And finally, those who do use special need specialized care use it, such as a woman who's just had a cesarean, can benefit uh, whenever possible, for example, by early skin-to-skin -skin and breastfeeding. So we feel that we can really um, turn our health system around, our maternity care system, in very important ways for all of these groups. All right. Whew. That was, that was a big backup. And I want to make sure that 
Okay. I think that you really def- you really did a really great job of defining woman-centered maternity. And I love the concept of, you know, like our body is our first primary maternal health care system. We just got to quit tampering with it so much, but also that make is- sure. Yeah. It, but also make sure that women who need a little help can get it. No doubt about that. Nobody's trying to take anything away from right, people right. who need it. Yeah. And I, could I share, please, that we do the National Listening to Mothers surveys, and in September we'll re- be releasing Listening to Mothers in California. Mm-hmm. And what we have been documenting it, with the same question asked in all of these surveys is um, a very a dramatic change in women's views over a 15-year period. That when we ask them, uh, how much do you agree or disagree, birth is a process that should not be interfered with unless medically necessary. When we first asked this, it's quite a f- about a fourth didn't really uh, know. Like, they neither agreed nor disagreed. And then the rest were kind of divided between the disagrees and the agrees. And what we've seen is that steadily the uh, people who don't know are, are getting a little smaller and the disagrees are disappearing that women are really in this uh, recent time period in the present century coming over to a, a, va- a view that aligns with what I just described, that yeah. um, let's not have things that are unnecessary and that can be very disruptive, painful, can cause unintended harm, et cetera. So that's a, a, an exciting um, confluence of women's wishes with um, the kinds of positions we've taken in this document. Yeah, great. So how do we reward healthcare providers and systems that deliver that kind of care? Right. So um, as I uh, mentioned, we we have seen some uh, payment pilots that have turned things around pretty quickly. So for example, the cesarean rate, we, we recognize that it's very high and it has pretty much flattened out for quite a few years, but we have seen payment reform pilots that have brought that down right away. So if you change the incentives, wow. if you, you get people... That? Yeah, so um, if, uh, for example, if you... Um, well, the, in this particular one that I'm thinking of, it was um, the, the hospital, three hospitals, and the care providers um, for so- several contracts for several of the health plans, not all the people giving, the women giving birth in those facilities, but some of them were renegotiated to say, this year you had such and such a cesarean rate. We think you can bring that down to safely to this many points in the coming year. And we're going to give you, we're going to pay you one fee, whether the birth is vaginal or cesarean, but what it amounts to is a lower cesarean rate. And we'll also help you, um, we'll give you technical support, help you with quality improvement, the things that people in your facility would like to work on. And they brought that rate right down very fast. And not only for the women who were covered by those health plans, but for all women in those facilities. And vaginal birth after cesarean wasn't even on the table, but that went up at the same time. So that's a really exciting example of how by changing the way we pay for care, we can get the attention of care providers. And also these um, new payment programs include elements of accountability. That's pretty new. Performance measures and targets and that you can um, actually earn more money by um, meeting or exceeding those targets. And then 
uh, over, there's an understanding that over time we should also we should give people time to get on board with with the program and with new ways of doing things. But then also if they uh, don't meet the um, targets, maybe they should be penalized as well. This is so innovative. I love it. Hit people in the wallet and they really respond, don't they? That is right. Yeah. And it also provides an incentive to um, use uh, high-performing elements of care, that, that is groups that are ready right now to uh, hit the sweet spot of appropriate care that both minimizes overuse, unneeded things, and also minimizes underuse, not really uh, relying on things we know that work that aren't uh, high, very widely high, implemented. So, so that would be things like midwives, doulas, birth centers. Um, so there's, room, there's scope in these um, you know, pretty sweeping ways of reconfiguring care for um, really thinking uh, in a different way about how we go about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you sort of touched on the second point, which is prioritize measuring and reporting on the quality of maternity care. And I just know that this is one of those measures that gets wonky real fast. So let's let's touch on that really quickly. But then I want to get to the other four because that's the sweet spot for our listeners. Tell me just Great. yeah, real quickly about the the data point here. Sure. Well, unless you know, unless you measure, you don't know how you're doing. And and even the the clinicians, they're good hearted. They think they're doing a good job. Um, they're dedicated. Uh, they are attentive uh, to their work, etc. But many of them become very surprised when they get that feedback of how they're doing and um, how they're doing relative to their peers or how their hospital is doing relative to other hospitals. So Quality uh, measures are re- have really have an important role for this quality improvement element, and then they also have a really important role for accountability, and that ties back to what we were talking about with payment. Is that that there's a um, there's a stake in how you do and how you perform on a particular metric for. Um, maybe your payment, but it also could be that, that this is going to be publicly reported. And so it, uh, it will be more common knowledge how you're doing, or it qualifies you for certain kinds of recognition programs. So those are ways that we can um, use quality measurement um, in the current system. So the next four points, what I want to do is I want to just mention all four of them briefly, and then I want to circle back to the third point because I think it's the one that is most pertinent. Is that okay with you? Yes, and I totally agree with you. I'd love to share that that information with your listeners. Okay, so the first point was reward healthcare providers. Second point was prioritize measuring. This third point is the real good one for our listeners, meaningfully engage women and families in maternity care. The fourth, change how we educate the maternity care workforce. Five, build up the maternity care workforce, and six, prioritize and support research to advance the science of physiologic childbearing and its effect on maternal and child health. So that's the six of them all in one package. But the one that I really want to talk most about is meaningfully engaging women and families in maternity care. Carol, where do we start? Um, So thanks for this opportunity. First, I'd like to say that in the uh, a lot of the quality improvement programs that are out there, this part is overlooked. It, there's not really a recognition that 
the women and families can be true partners in the transformation we need. So not only can individual women and families change the trajectory of their own care by, by becoming involved, but as a group, we have the opportunity to um, really impact the healthcare system by giving them the tools, knowledge, et cetera, to become actively engaged. So here we have three um, very high-level recommendations, and I'd just like to mention what those are and give a few examples in each case. Uh, the first one is how can we make the system ready to support women? So there are certain kinds of things that we can put in place that aren't really uh, well implemented at this time. And one example um, that I alluded to previously is public reporting. So um, women uh, need to understand that uh, quality isn't the same everywhere they go. And the care team that they're working with, the facility door that they walk into, uh, can have a huge impact on what happens to them. So public reporting interfaces are really important to help women understand um, that why they might want to choose one or another care team, why they might want to choose one or another facility, which in almost all cases in the U.S. is at the hospital level. These kinds of centralized resources are currently available for the Medicare population and Medicare conditions. Um, and then they're available in a smaller, less standardized, more less difficult, less easy to find way um, for um, maternity, some maternity issues at the state level. So what we're really calling for is using the research that we know about how can we have these be user-friendly, meaningful, and help women uh, have this become a standardized part of maternity care. First of all, I'm going to make a wise choice of my care team. So that's one example. Another example that, um, again, has been developed in other areas for diabetes and cancer, for example, and for um, Medicare is care navigators. But we think there's a huge role for this um, type of uh, personnel in maternity care. Uh, this kind of person could lend a hand with finding and using that quality information. Not everybody's going to be able to navigate that, but helping you, um, you know, what's relevant to you and the insurance coverage that you have and where you live and so forth. Um, finding and uh, getting access to needed community and social services as things uh, come up uh, when the woman is in care. And also navigating um, across the whole episode of care, which often covers different settings and different personnel in terms of prenatal, the childbirth phase, and the postpartum phase. So how can we tie that all together and support women in um, a process, a progress that is going to be um, meaningful and safe and healthy for them? And that could include um, creating a care plan, which uh, I'll uh, mention in a minute. So one or two other examples are that health plan directories really uh, don't lend too much of a hand in helping women uh, find maternity care providers. Many OBGYNs um, retire early from the obstetrics part of their practice. 
relatively few family physicians are providing maternity care, and all too often midwives don't even get represented in the directories. So that's another area where um, we could change our systems to be more user-friendly to um, women's engagement. And I'll just mention one more, but I I hope um, anyone who's interested would like to give the URL um, can go see all the ideas that we have, is that we have a shortage of performance measures that are reported by the women themselves. We are very we strongly encourage um, the use where women say at the end of the day, what was their experience of getting maternity care and what are their outcomes? How are they doing at the end of the day? And that information is really important to feedback to the healthcare system and also for uh, having women be able to make their care choices on the basis of how other women um, have reported their experiences. Hmm. There's so much good stuff here. So much good stuff. Thank you. Thank you. So the um, second area is focusing on communication and education. And we actually start here with something that's been a dream of of ours for a very long time, which is some formal testing of messages. What is helpful to communicate to women some basic information that they need to be able to navigate the maternity care system? So in the case of this project, to communicate the value of healthy perinatal physiologic processes, the importance of judicious use of interventions. The the fact of quality variation in our national surveys, only about a third of women understand that quality varies by hospital and by obstetrician. So um, these are some just really, and then the corollary to that is it's really important that you make a wise choice and that you become engaged and involved in that. So we feel that we need basic understanding of the kinds of messages that will be effective and then packaging those messages um, in ways that the whole childbirth community could use, uh, including um, uh, videos and modules that could be used by childbirth educators and doulas and clinicians. Um, So those are uh, some of the parts of uh, education. And also it's Many of us are strong supporters of the value of childbirth education, but the evidence about it is very mixed because the ways of providing childbirth education are very mixed. So I think we need a lot more better understanding of what kinds of childbirth education are effective in um, helping women at this time. So do we know? Do we know what kinds or are we just asking the question right now? Well, I think we need to ask the question because, uh, and this is an area where there haven't been a a lot of resources available. So we have some sample examples of things that have had an impact, um, but all too often the impact is limited. So that is a big area for uh, further research. Ooh, I'm going to be really interested in that. I've had a lot of, you know, conversations and I, and I think I've written a few articles about it over the years about, you know, the, which is better, you know, the traditional childbirth education experience where you've got 10 couples in a room together, you know, or the online experience that more and more women are taking part in today. And of course there are pros and cons on either side, but you know, it's sometimes it's a, it comes down to a difference between what women can access, what is affordable, 
you know, it's not so much, are they getting exactly the information they need to have a comprehensive prenatal education? It's more about, well, what can I get and what can I afford? You know, the closest, the closest group I could join is a two hour drive away. That's not happening. You know? Right. No, I think or, the childbirth education groups are trying to think uh, creatively about how yeah. better to use the technology we have. Another major trend of late is that a lot of them are being offered by the facilities and it's really about what to expect. You'll come here, you'll do this and less the traditional um, offerings about, you know, these are your options and these are the pros and cons of your options, et cetera. Um, So I think we've had a big trend and also to shorten that and uh, to, you know, quit more briefer, fewer sessions and less contact. Right. So it's really been cha- changed a lot in recent years, mm. and um, but yet has a lot of potential, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, there's a whole lot. Once again, there's just so much there, Carol. <laughs> 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 I have this feeling you and I could talk about this all day long. So what else do we want listeners to know right now? Great. Well, I could just share the third um, high-level recommendation in the care, um, yeah. in the engagement section. And then I think that's a good um, summary of, um, you know, what would be of of greatest interest to your listeners from this blueprint. Mm -hmm. The third one focuses on a shared birth preferences care plan and as a part of that shared decision making. So um, right now there's dozens if not hundreds of checklists out there. Would you like this? Would you like this? The problem with those is there is no information about the options and why somebody might want one or another option. So we, uh, this particular focus steps back, talks about the importance of having a, creating a, a care plan and a, and a birth preferences care plan. And we say preferences because, of course, things can take a different turn. So we have to yeah. be realistic about that. Um, and But then the tools that are uh, needed for that as well. So um, this is a, a very amenable to um, health information technology so that the woman and her family have access, all members of the care team. It should be available where she's planning to give birth, she should be able to modify it as if things change or she has a new understanding. And also um, tools that are decision tools and educational tools, but but we are very supportive, especially of decision aids, which is a formal tool for particular decisions that, uh, and especially there's so many that people face, um, that start by saying there is a decision to be made. It's all too often kind of women get swept through this process without even being aware of, oh, uh, my decision, what are the options? What would I, what right. would work for me? So a decision to be made, what are the options, something about what those involve, the pros and the cons. And then a common part of shared decision-making is uh, often looking at your own, the woman's own values and preferences and uh, discussing whether her personal circumstances might predispose her to one or another um, of the options as well. So making that an informed decision and then um, getting it documented in the care plan. So that's um, uh, the the gist of the um, third 
a high-level recommendation for um, around engage consumer engagement in this blueprint. Let's make sure that listeners who want more information know exactly where to go so that they can, did you say 22 points under these six categories? Yes. So where should they go? Yes, that's now? right. 22. Great. So um, it's a, we have a simple redirect URL, uh, www.nationalpartnership.org slash blueprint. And um, we will be uh, putting up uh, six uh, the separate pieces for the six strategies. So, for example, uh, your listeners could just pull the consumer engagement piece as well. And we are asking people to share this, share it with the people who need to um, be aware of uh, these options and uh, uh, the people who could possibly engage in it, whether it's your you know, the policymakers that you work with or the leaders in your hospital or um, groups that you may be involved with, advocacy groups, et cetera. So um, trying to get the word out at this point in time. And also it will only be a lovely document unless people work on the implementation. And we have um, nearly 200 uh, action steps, <laughs> many things that different people from different perspectives could become engaged with. And we believe that this is the direction that um, can really make a difference. So I would like to challenge my listeners to go to the, um, the URL and find the blueprint, print it off and take it to your next prenatal care appointment, hand it to your midwife, your physician and say, Hey, would you do me a favor? Would you give this a read between now and my next appointment? And then when I come in next time, could you just say five minutes so that we could talk about it? Just do that and think about how many thousands of physicians would have that document in their hands. So listeners, do it, will you? Do it, do it. Carol, what's that URL one more time? Yes, um, nationalpartnership.org slash blueprint. Great. Carol, I love having you on the podcast. Let's have you come on regularly because you're just so informative. It's great. Well, thanks, Jean. I really appreciate the opportunity to reach uh, the very important group of uh, people who follow your podcast. They're pregnant women who are changing the world. They're citizens, they're advocates, they're doing their thing, and they're going to make a difference. That's what they're doing. Yeah. All right, Carol, we'll talk again. Okay. Thanks for this conversation. Mama said there'll be days like this. There'll be days like this. Mama said, Mama said, That's it for this week's folks. This week, folks. I know that was a long one, so thanks for hanging out with us and for educating yourself about this stuff. It's important, and we need you to be part of the conversation here on the podcast and in your doctor or midwife's offices and in the offices of your members of Congress who have a lot to say about how things go for mothers like us and families like ours all over the world. Our guests today were Avital Norman Nathman, and you can learn more about her and about Grok Nation at Grok grocknation.com. You can learn more about Carol Sakala's work at nationalpartnership.org. And as always, you can learn more about me at genefaulkner.com. Go pick up a copy of Common Sense Pregnancy over on my website and I'll autograph it and send it out the door super fast. Or you can pick up a copy on Amazon, at your local bookstore, or wherever books are sold. 
And please leave us a review of the podcast wherever you download them and give us a shout out on your social media, will you? Let's grow this thing, shall we? We want to say thanks to our sponsors at Cabrita Goat's Milk Formula. Check them out at cabritausa.com. Send them an email at hello at cabrita.ca. Tell them you heard about them on Common Sense and they'll send you a free tin. Thanks, y'all. We'll talk again next week. Bye-bye.